This is Petticoat Rule, a program about musical productivity examined through the storytelling lens of women in the music industry. I'm your host, Erica Lang, and let me introduce producer Tara Molesworth. Hello. And our guest today is Cindy Howes. Do I say hello? You say hello. <laughs> hello. <laughs> We're live and direct with the Lone Bellow on 91.3 WYEP, performing tonight at the Rex. Latest album, Then Came the Morning. Uh, Zach, are you busy? Are you tuning? Okay. I'm Okay. I wanted to ask you, I think you're such a great storyteller. I've heard you tell stories on stage in interviews just now telling us a story about fake roses, um, whether it's within a song or you're just, you know, telling a story on stage. Uh, I'm interested to know who taught you how to tell a story and, you know, what do you think makes a good story? Cindy is a little bit of a different guest for us because her dominant involvement in the music industry is not in the generation of the music itself, but rather the development of spaces within which musicians and their art may flourish. At Pittsburgh's Freeform radio station, 91.3 WYEP, where the music matters. Right. Matters. <laughs> it matters. Cindy hosts the Evening Mix and also possesses the title of Digital Content Manager. But my favorite measure of her impact is in her promotion of local music. She hosts a weekly spotlight called The Local 913, which gives the opportunity for smaller artists to be heard by countless and avid listeners across Western PA and beyond, occasionally even performing in front of huge audiences as a part of WYEP's many live events. Cindy also conducts many interviews of local and national artists, snippets of which we will hear today as her original creative piece. As I have recently come to understand, conducting a provocative interview is a specific creative act with unique challenges, not unlike crafting a musical piece. Today, I hope to learn from Cindy about her career development in this domain, as well as her insights into what dimensions are critical for success. Essentially, it'll be an interview of an interviewer about interviewing, just to be <laughs> extra confusing for everyone. But first, I like to try to dig up something interesting about people. You're a public figure who does not have a lot of dirt That's around great. on the internet. Yeah. Like, it's <laughs> like everybody else, I'm, I can find all these weird things or whatever. But in high school, it said in high school you were into band, chorus, drama, TV, radio, 4-H, and you were a goth kid. Yeah, that's right. And I liked this because I liked to imagine you as a goth kid with a horse. A lamb. A lamb? It was yeah, a lamb that was lamb. here. Mm -hmm. So did you raise this lamb? Yes. Um, well, I... <laughs> <laughs> so I started 4-H when I was really young. I can't remember how young, maybe like, I don't know, my brother was doing it, so I would do everything he would do. And uh, I was, I think it was in elementary school, we started mm -hmm. with rabbits. And then when I was 12, I joined the sheep club. And every a year, sheep, club? sheep, yeah. So is that a subdivision of 4-H or is this no, I mean, so separate club? We lived in the suburbs, the suburbs of Boston. Uh -huh. I'm from New England, Massachusetts, yeah. Walpole, Massachusetts, um, which is like at the time there was maybe like half a dozen family farms in my town. And now there's like one and Aww. it's an, it's part of our agricultural high school that for some reason is in my stupid suburb, which I mean... <laughs> 
anybody from Walpole is listening to this podcast, I'm really sorry, but I don't really like Walpole Aww. too much. But um, the the farm was in Walpole, and we didn't own our animals because we lived, you know, in a suburban town, sure. different town surrounding area. So we would lease our animals, hmm. and then. It was sort of like a collective where we would go to the barn. It was like one person's responsibility, a different person's responsibility every night to like feed and water the sheep. And then on the weekends, we would have our 4-H club meetings and clean out a pen. And my dad was the sheep club leader. Oh, wow. And my mom was the rabbit club leader. The rabbits lived at our house. We At one point, we had like 65 rabbits. Oh, my God. We had, it was called a rabbit tree. Wait, a rabbit tree? Rabbit tree. Oh, you mean the house is called the rabbit tree? No, the well, it's like a if you if you're raising rabbits, you uh -huh. have a rabbit tree. Oh, okay, I see. Like you have like a flock of okay, you know, yeah, seagulls and a, and yeah. a rabbit tree. Yeah, I yeah, guess. yeah. I don't know. Yeah, but. yeah, yeah. I was when you first said it, I parsed it as rabbit tree, and then I was envisioning <laughs> like a tree this, of rabbits. This and, tree, yeah, like some yeah. sort of like weird tree-like structure for them to inhabit. That's good. Yeah, that's basically what it was. Well, but they, they, were they inside your house? Yeah, they're in the basement, wow. like oh, in wow. bunny cages. So animals are very prominent in your childhood, apparently. Yeah. This is actually something I did not know about you. Yeah. See, the internet didn't have this information on you. It's crazy. It's crazy. I mean, I'm there's, really there's some pictures on my Instagram that will pop up like a few years ago. I took this like really amazing picture of myself after I'd like gotten my hair done and my makeup was like perfect. And so like I posted a picture of myself and then like... The next day, I posted a picture of me when I was like nine and like fat and like in my 4-H <laughs> outfit. And I was like, just to counteract that yeah. picture yesterday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is so reality. This humble, humble the experience. <laughs> down, down, down. I worked really hard every year to try to save the lambs that I was raising, either like place them in a safe place. Mm -hmm. There's um, a really great nonprofit called the Heifer Project that I would like somehow um, convince my dad to like donate my lambs to the heifer project every year. And the heifer project, um, will distribute animals throughout the country and throughout the world to poor families, um, oh. in order to give them sort of a leg up great wow. organization. Wow. So you've been like a, a, what is the word for this? Uh, a philanthropist, a, a humanitarian, <laughs> a humanitarian slash animaltarian yeah. for a long, long time. Yeah. I won't um, eat lamb or mutton, mm -hmm. uh, and I won't wear sheepskin, or the same goes with rabbits, because those were like my... I didn't consider them livestock. I considered them my pets, even though there were totally. so many of them. Um, but you don't have a rabbit as a pet now. No, I have a cat named Dottie. <laughs> she is the just the most beautiful kitty cat. Um, she's named after um, Dottie Henson from A League of Their Own. Gina, oh, Gina Davis. Wow. Cool. Swoon. Yeah. Love it. Love that. She is a swoon kitty. I feel like you could have turned out to be like a little girl who wanted to be a vet turinarian. Mm -hmm. How did that happen to you at all? Or, yes. or it did? Yeah. You know, when they ask you, I was really stressed out because when I was a kid, people would ask me, I would ask everybody, I'm sure you got asked, yeah. like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I'm like, I don't know, not really. Sure. I'm not. But then I was like, well, I guess I have to think about it because they keep asking me, which is maybe the yeah. point yeah. <laughs> of adults asking you what you want to be. So I would like write down farmer 
not knowing like how <laughs> awful and hard that is. When did you think about radio person? There's a story about this. When I was 12 for my birthday, my parents got me one of those like Sony alarm clock radios because I was the worst at getting up and <laughs> still am. Um, but they like my dad would like do the um, like bugle. Like he didn't play a bugle, but he would like sing the trumpet like it's time to get up in the morning song mm. and like pull the covers off of me and like. Yeah. Rise and shine types in. <laughs> Rise and shine. They were sick of doing that. So they bought me this little alarm clock and I started listening to, I would wake up to the radio and then I would go to sleep to the radio and just became obsessed with listening to the radio and having it in my room was really special. And uh, I got to know the morning DJs and the afternoon DJs and the evening DJs, not so much the midday DJs because I had to go to school. Mm. But I was listening to um, the top 40 radio station in Boston. The morning show is called Maddie in the Morning. Mm -hmm. And I remember listening to that and thinking like, I could do that. That seems like pretty good. And <laughs> so I was like, I'm going to I hear there is a radio station at my high school uh, I'm 12, so I'll be in high school in two years, so I'll figure out where it is, and I'll join the radio club. Did you make little, you know, when I was that age, I was making, like, little fake radio shows on <laughs> mixtapes and stuff. Did you do that kind of thing? I, I remember I made one with my brother, and we were absolutely ridiculous, and I I remember from the fake radio broadcast, I was begging him to play Mr. Big, I'm the one that wants to be with you. <sighs> <laughs> it's my favorite song. We had it on single. That was your was that your first radio request? Yes. Wow. Yes, what about was. the first time you called into a radio station? I don't remember it, but I do remember calling into a radio station. It might have been in so I'm from Massachusetts, so it might have been in New Hampshire or Connecticut, some far flung New England state. Um, they were having, it was before internet radio, so it had to have been like somewhere around our, our radius. They were having silver chair, uh, on live on the radio, they were going to perform and they were going to do an interview. And if you wanted to ask them a question, you could call. And I was like, Oh my God, I loved silver chair so much. <laughs> they were one of my first be really like obsessive bands, uh -huh. which is ridiculous, I know. But I called the radio station and I was like, I want to ask. So like the bass player, Chris, he had just cut his, he had like really long hair, like to hair as long as your hair, like down, down, down. And he had just cut it like, like, and I was kind of disappointed because mm. I think maybe the reason that I liked this band of um, teenage boys with long hair is because they kind of look like girls. <laughs> uh, I was like, I want to know why Chris cut his hair. And the lady answering the phone was like, that's not a great question. I'm sorry. <laughs> it is too a great question. Well, she, she was not convinced. And so I was like, all right. And so uh, I sat there and I thought a little bit longer and I called back up and I was like, I want to ask them what the differences they see because they're Australian. I want to I want to know the differences between Australian teenage culture and American teenage culture. And she was like, "All right, hold on." And so that is a good question. I was on hold, and then I got to ask Silverchair 
that question. You got to ask them yourself with your I, own voice? With my own voice. Wow. And I was so, I, I remember being on the phone and my brother's like, what are you doing? And I wrote down in like shaky letters, no. like, I'm going to ask Silverchair a question. <laughs> and I think I was, I was taping it mm-hmm. like on a tape deck. And um, my brother was like, oh, all right. So he went to go listen to the radio while I asked him the question because I was in the other room because there's like a little delay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they tell you to turn your radio down, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, after I asked the question, the answer was like, there's more stress in America for teenagers than there is in Australia. And he went on like a little bit. Mm. But then my brother was like, he didn't answer your question. That was a really good question. So I have to say... That is a really good question. And also, I kind of love this story because it's like a, a, your first interview question, too, right? Yeah. And so, like, now, like, you went on, you know, do all these wonderful interviews and everything. <laughs> and, you know, I don't know, foreshadowing to some of my interview questions. I mean, I think, like, interviewing is is hard because you have a story arc and everything, right? right. Yeah. And, um, and the... But the person also has their own ideas about what they're going to talk about, too. Right, yeah. So you're wrangling with that all the time. So anyway, I want to ask you a lot more about that later. But I think this is a really cool moment because it's like your first interview question yeah. ever, which is neat. And plus the lady. Like the best band in the world, Silver Chair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the other thing, interesting thing about the story is that um, she gave you, she, she said, no, that's not a good right. question. Rejection. You got rejected and you stuck with your thing, though. You were like, I still want to do this. You went back to the drawing table. You thought about it. And you came up with something that you knew she would accept. Right. And you probably she would accept. And, like, it was actually a lot better of a question. And I actually thought the long hair question was pretty good. So that tells you where I'm at in my interviewing <laughs> skills. <laughs> she basically was like raised the bar for like what kind of question. I was yeah. like, great, let's get down and, and let's let's do Oprah. Let's, you yeah. know, Barbara Walters this. It's a great initial experience, to be honest. That's a really cool story. Yeah. I love it. So what if... Oh, I was like 14 at the time, by the way, that that, yeah. that happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's very, I mean, I wasn't like 17 or 18 years old. I was like, I was a little kid. So what about the radio was so captivating to you? Like, why, why was it? Why, why did you have an urge for that? A lot, everybody listens to the radio, but not everybody has an urge to go be a part of it. We came of age, people who are, who can label themselves as ex Um, if you were born between like 1978 and like 1985, we were born at a time where the radio was pretty amazing. Like the early 90s was awesome. Like up until about 1996, 1997, the music that was being shared was unbelievable. The DJs that were on were captivating. I mean, I think it was like the last golden age of radio, and it really left oh. an impression on me that you. I loved music, and to me, this was like the best way to share music. Coming And then going to college and learning about commercial radio, I was in college from 2000 to 2004, so there's something that if you listen to radio and you're like, why did radio used to not be so bad? There's something that you got to understand about a piece of legislation that happened in 1996 called the Telecommunications Act of 1996 that deregulated media monopolies 
in, in markets across the country. So Clear Channel, CBS, Cumulus, all these like big companies started to have monopolies like mom and pop radio stations were no longer. When I talk about this, like I want to make a clear difference that public radio is completely different than commercial radio. Yeah, no, please um, demystify it because I think people (laughs) don't understand. I mean, I don't understand all the delineations. So when you're talking about like deregulating and mom and pop radios, these are all commercial stations where um, revenue is important and and, and the bottom line is important. But you used to have these like smaller radio stations that cared about in real in in not just i mean there are commercial stations that do so much for the community that raise money for hospitals and different charities and that's really important and and i and i'm not talking about that i'm talking about like radio stations that used to actually care about local community in terms of like music communities in terms of like playing music that was challenging intelligent um that didn't just defer to the lowest common denominator that's what i mean Mm -hmm. so you have this act of legislation passed in 1996 that allowed these companies to just swoop in and buy up all these radio stations and different media companies and then you start getting stations that all they care about is ratings all they care about is revenue you know they might hang on to like so WYEP the format's called AAA mm-hmm. which is a really kind of experimental um, format it stands for adult album alternative so we can play you two like the old AAA was like we're gonna play the Rolling Stones next to Frank Sinatra next to Beethoven mm-hmm. you know so it's kind of like more reined in mm-hmm. these days um, but uh, you might have like a, tr- a commercial AAA station that lives in that universe, but it's like they're not playing Lucinda Williams and right. uh, Feist and Broken Social Scene. They're playing like Nickelback and mm-hmm. Fallout Boy and U2. Yeah. I mean, everybody plays U2, but like they're they're may- they probably aren't playing U2. Like they're playing they're playing like all the most obnoxious hits from the '90s that you can think of. You know, sure. like. It's just kind of turned into, it's just, it's just a kind of a mess, you know? So had I been born 15 years later, I would probably be doing something really different. Uh-huh. That being said, I feel really lucky and everybody in Pittsburgh should feel really lucky that WIEP exists in this town as well as WESA and WQED. Um, Mm-hmm. the classical station because it's for a city this size to have three really strong very good public radio stations is like incredible yeah plus um even in the at the college level aren't a lot of them formatted too so wrct is free form isn't it and wpts is a little bit wpts is i i could be wrong but i believe they are mostly run by students and it's yeah. mostly like a college format yeah. And WRCT may have students working on it, but I think it's a lot of community members doing shows that they've done for a really long time. There's a station in Boston at the at MIT that I feel like is similar to mm-hmm. RCT. Do you, do you think that um I do I 
do think that people, like listeners, there are listeners who have, that fills a need for them, you know, the sort of the, like the the mindless stuff they already know from the 90s or 80s or whatever kind mm-hmm. of streaming through. But I think there's a listener need for that kind of uniqueness and more on the avant-garde or, or the kinds of things that you guys are playing. Yeah. And I also wonder if... On WYP. On WYP. Yeah. And 91.3 FM. Where w- the music matters. Where the music matters. <laughs> um, WYP.org. Um, do you think that this sort of like the the listeners' interests is also where things like uh, podcasts are becoming more and more popular just because people want more of the original content as opposed to um, the commercialized? 10 or 12 years ago when podcasts were first becoming like a thing, like this is the, this is the thing that's going to happen. The podcasts that I was making and was interested in listening to in terms of like music podcasts were like five minutes long. Mm -hmm. They're Mm. like, people aren't going to listen longer than this. But now it's like people want long conversations. You know, I guess like This American Life has always been pretty long, Mm -hmm. but that was never strange because it was an hour long radio show that they turned into a podcast. But um, the, the fact that more people are making longer podcasts, I think is awesome. And people listen to the whole thing. Yeah, I'm actually Which, always amazed when people tell tell me, oh, this thing that someone said at the end. And then I'm like, right. when that was in, that was in like the end of that episode. So we you were in the, to the whole thing. We were in the 12th hour. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for real though, sometimes our episodes get quite long. Sorry, everybody. But like, it's good stuff. There's good stuff in there. And um, I really appreciate people listening. And they say, I really love this thing that she said at the, you know, and I'm like, wow. Listening to podcasts can be the equivalent of like listening to music or reading a book or taking a walk or petting a dog Mm -hmm. or like something that really like raises your serotonin level. Yeah. Like it's something that kind of activates your brain, especially if you get a good one. You, another thing from this interview that you probably remember this online, (laughs) that's like my only source of. Is it, are we allowed to say the other podcast name? What's that? The Sewers of Paris. Is that the, the That's interview? not what I'm referring no? to. Oh, all right. No. Forget it. Um, a friend of mine, Matthew Baum, uh, we went to Emerson College together. He has a podcast called The Sewers of Paris where he interviews gay men about art that changed their life. Oh. So I'm the first lady oh. on this podcast. Breaking barriers. Yeah. Left and right. Right. So we talked about Tori Amos and... Mm. We talked about vulnerability and uh, perfectionism and meditation. And man, it was, I was like, I, so I was listening, I've listened to the podcast a couple of times and like, I'm like crying through the whole interview. (laughs) It's very vulnerable. So do you love Tori Amos? Yeah, I do. You know, she has a house near where I grew up. In? In Southern Florida. Southern Florida. Yeah. Because I was wondering if you... Or talking about Ireland or Florida oh, yeah, or right. Baltimore. <laughs> I know, right? Because yeah. you know all of them. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, so when I was growing up, it was it was like that '90s period of time where it was a little before the internet and stuff. So that we there was like a phone tree for Tory watchers, <gasps> and if anyone saw her out around town, you would like call the phone tree and then ever the news would spread then everyone would like show up at Albertsons or whatever wherever she was grocery shopping 
She had like a French restaurant she went to and a specific grocery store she would go to yeah. that's no longer there. And uh, she went to Barnes and Noble a lot, um, actually. And she and I both read the same astrology book at Barnes and Noble and then reshelved it. Like she would read it and reshelve it, and I would read it and reshelve it. <laughs> and then sometimes I. The same copy. The same copy. There was only one. There was just this huge book. I don't know why she didn't buy it. But anyway, we would run into each other. Well, she the had other a one major was, label recording contract. Why didn't she buy it? Well, here's another here's another she little story. Here's another little story. She bought a Sarah McLachlan CD from my friend at the music store. Whoa. Which one? Which CD? Yeah. I don't know. What year was it? Fumbling? Was it Fumbling Towards Ecstasy? The year was 1996 or 7. Oof. Might have been surfacing. 97, I think. And she's like, I'm going to check this girl out. Keep hearing about her. Well, get this. <laughs> Three days later, she came back and she returned it. <gasps> yeah. Can you do that? I mean, she doesn't need to. She's like, you know, freaking she wealthy person. It. She returned it. Was she it. just like dubbing it on a tape and returning <laughs> <it>? <laughs> No, my friend asked her, why are you returning this? What did she say? She said it put her to sleep. <gasps> Yeah, She's shade like, oh, major. It pulled me to sleep. I mean, she was never on Ugh. Lilith Fair. She wasn't, you know, and and that is because her shows are her are for her fans, and oh. it's why she has said that she has not did not do Lilith Fair. I thought maybe it was because she didn't like Sarah McLaughlin's music, <laughs> based off of this one story. But f- I feel better about how everybody, how uh, how women are. Are supporting each other. Did you see at the Oscars, Frances McDormand won for Best Actress, and she had all the women stand up who were nominated that night, which was a really lovely moment of women supporting mm-hmm. women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I do think there used to be more like lateral competition between women, and and I think in some areas that of the world or of life or of career, that can still be the case. But I agree with you that there is a lot more women doing things for other women because there's a recognition that that's, that's the real way to make progress. Mm-hmm. Or that's also the most authentic way to make progress because if we rely on appealing to men or to everyone, um, then that's not going to be as productive and it doesn't come from us anymore. Mm-hmm. It's like still asking for permission somehow, right? Rather than just make taking action and doing it, doing what you need to do. Um, so, do you consider radio to be a male-dominated field? Yes. And interviewing, and like, I mean, I don't know. DJ and interview is not necessarily synonymous huh. all the time. Well. I think the best interviewers I have ever come across are women. Terry Gross mm. is probably the best interviewer I've ever listened to. Mm. Uh, Rosemary Welsh, who is the afternoon mix host on WIP, is an excellent interviewer. She taught me so much, uh, and she's like the master at it. Um, Rita Houston at WFUV in New York, also an excellent interviewer. Three examples of amazing. Oprah, mm-hmm. great yeah, interviewer. Of course. Yeah, not Oprah. the Oprah's not radio, but 
She does have a podcast called Super Soul Sundays that's actually a TV show. (laughs) She has a whole radio station. She has a, yep. I mean, she's TV also, station. She's got like a magazine. whole empire. Yep. I mean, she's just got a whole legion of people who would like throw down for her if she asked them to, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think that oh, Talia Schlanger of the World Cafe, also a great oh, yeah. interviewer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's awesome. You get some hearts over there for mm-hmm. Tall. <laughs> yeah, I think you know it's like uh, once you go to to video, I feel like it's even fewer women interviewers mm. i mean maybe in the news channels you see them but right. like samantha b is one but there's no like the tonight show with sure yeah well the women are on in the midday mm. like wendy williams oh yeah and ellen ellen so yeah. great yeah rachel maddow great interviewer uh-huh. um katie couric of course had that sarah palin moment was that her and sarah palin oh which moment is that <laughs> <laughs> where she was asking her if she read magazines, oh. what magazine she read with her walking and talking. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, what, did, what did Sarah Palin say? If I told you, I feel like we'd like our mind, I feel like if we, we revisited would that, dumber. we'd be unhinged. Yeah. <laughs> Let's leave it I mean, in the box. I mean, Erica, we are clinging to <laughs> our sanity and stability. Yeah. We don't need anything to unhinge. Let's us. Uh, let's keep that one in the box. Uh, I think Addie Twig is a great interviewer. She is a great interviewer. Um, the Added Up podcast, Erica. I think you are a great interviewer. Aw, I was not asking for a compliment, <laughs> but thank you. Um, and then there was one more lady I wanted to mention. If uh, maybe I already mentioned Rachel Maddow. Yeah, my goal in life is to be Rachel Maddow's friend. Really? Yes. She owns a house in the town where my family has a summer cabin. So um, I was at a family funeral, which was very sad um, and beautiful. And I saw my distant relative, Steve, and I was like, hey, Steve, where does Rachel Maddow live? (laughs) And he was like, you mean Rachel Mad Cow? And I was like, all right. <laughs> you. <sighs> so many things. We should we do a whole separate podcast on Steve House. But anyways, he finally, I was like, yeah, whatever. Just tell me where she lives. So my mom's like, oh, I know where that is. And so we try to go find it. And uh, I've seen a picture of her house on the internet. I'm not a stalker. But I just wanted to see where she lived. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think we found it, though. So, but yeah, you should totally bake brownies and go over to Rachel Maddow's I just think that she and I would really get along. I bet a lot of people think that. But I think you probably <laughs> probably would actually get along with her. And I, I hope your dream comes true someday. Well, no, I guess my, my dream would be to meet her mm. and Eddie Vedder. Rachel mm. Maddow and Eddie Vedder. At the same time? Oh, my God. I don't think I can handle that. (laughs) I feel like you could meet Eddie Vedder, though. Yeah. I think you have – it's, like, within your grasp probably right now. Mm, Yeah. I'm probably, like, a couple degrees away from him. I do have an Eddie Vedder sad story that I missed. I missed Mm -hmm. out on meeting him. Mm -hmm. I actually told this the other night. It's so sad. So my brother's best friend, Brendan, who is so cool – he was like, do you want to go see Pearl Jam with me? I'm like, absolutely, yes. So we went and saw Pearl Jam at the Boston Garden. And afterwards, we're riding the subway home. And he was like, you want to go get a drink? And I was like, yeah. We go to Toad. 
or we go to Johnny D's. Johnny D's is right by my house. Toad sometimes has music, but it's not always good. So I don't know if we should go there. Let's just go to Johnny D's. He's like, all right, cool. So the next day I was at the folk club in Harvard Square Club Passim. They were having a festival that I would like, I would hang out at Club Passim all the time. But I ran into a couple friends who were like, you'll never guess who was at Toad last night. Aww. Eddie Vedder went to Toad with Theo Epstein, who at the time was the general manager of the Boston Red Sox, and Steve Morse, who was the music writer for the Boston Globe. Steve Morse lives basically across the street from Toad, this like really cool music club in Porter Square in Cambridge. But Eddie Vedder was there hanging out, drinking beers, talking to people. They got up on stage, played Neil Young songs, and I was ah. like, damn it. <laughs> so I called Brendan. I was like, listen, I got to tell you something. I want you to hear from me. <laughs> if you don't want to be my friend anymore, I understand. But Eddie Vedder was at Toad last night. He was like, ah. Well, you couldn't have known, which is what makes it so much sadder. I yeah, think, I know. Too. But yeah. like it was on the tip of my tongue to go to Toad. I should have just, uh, when in doubt, go to Toad. So is he your most famous person that you almost saw but didn't? Yes. Who is your most famous person that you have interacted with? Um, Tori Amos. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I think, I can't remember if there's anybody else more famous than her. So I'll and just what say, were the circumstances of that? I met her a few times. So she does like meet and greets, mm -hmm. like um, uh, unofficial meet and greets before and after her shows sometimes. Where I don't know if she still does them, but in the early 2000s, she was still doing them where she'll come out for like a half an hour and talk to people and sign pictures and stuff. And I mm -hmm. met her in one of those situations. And then, so she has a nonprofit called Rain, which is um, for victims of rape, abuse, and incest. It's a mm -hmm. hotline. Sorry, I don't know the number off the top of my head. Uh, you can look it up if you want to. Um, yeah, let's look it up. But we would do, uh, my friends and I, we found Tori, we found each other through like Tori Amos Networks and obsessively would raise money for Rain because it's such a good cause. Did you find it? 1-800-656-H-O-P-E. That's it. Yeah. So what it does is if you call that number at any place in the country, it will connect you to the closest rape crisis center to talk to like a real human. Um, and she, she co-founded that, I think, in 1994. So we were always like doing fundraisers for rain and everything. So mm -hmm. I got to meet her in a meet and greet situation because we raised enough, like we raised so wow. much money that we like got to go backstage, cool, get our pictures taken and talk to her. And then I met her at my college radio station. Um, she was there doing a Q and A for other like college media people, mm -hmm. media members. And then uh, I worked at a commercial station in Boston where I got to interview her like backstage for like 20 minutes, which was like, oh man, it was so crazy. It was great. My voice was like this high. <laughs> she was really cool and nice. And at the end, I was like, I just want to let you know this is the first time I've done something like this. She's like, oh, you're an old pro. <laughs> I would have never known. What did you talk to her about? She was, um, she had her record, The Beekeeper, out at the time. Um, so we were talking about that record. We were talking about um, her book that had also come out around the same time that she co-wrote with, or not co-wrote, but Ann Powers, 
mm-hmm. helped her out. Ann Powers is now an NPR contributor. She's on the World Cafe occasionally. She lives in Nashville. So if they have like a Nashville session on the World Cafe, Ann is doing the interview. Or if um, Morning Edition is doing a music segment, Ann is on mm-hmm. um, talking about music. And she is frequently on NPR music as a writer, but uh, she's awesome. That was the first time I came across Ann Powers, hmm. who's, uh, I met her for the first time um, in November. I got to go to NPR Music's 10th anniversary concert, which was an amazing experience. I was so lucky to be able to go. Um, and she, to me, Ann Powers is like a celebrity. Mm-hmm. And she was like, all of my expectations were met and exceeded when I met her because she was so cool and so supportive. Like we didn't even really have a conversation, but just the way that she interacted with me, I f- it felt like she was like a genuine person who loves what she's doing and appreciates other people, no matter who they are, hmm. you know, like I'm like, I'm like nobody to Ann Powers, but she was like super cool to me. So what do you think constitutes a good interview? I think you need to be able to listen to what the person is saying to you. Um, You need to not ask yes or no questions if you want a full answer. Mm -hmm. And if you do have a yes or no question, reframe it so that you can get something more because a lot of people will, if you ask a yes or no question, if they are having a bad day or just don't like to talk very much, they will say yes or no. And then nothing else. <laughs> and then it's all over. And then it's all over. <laughs> yeah. Um, but those are the, those are two important things that I think you learn over time, like what makes a good interview. So in my particular situation, if I'm interviewing someone, it's most likely because they have a particular project coming out. So you want to make sure that you have enough information and enough questions and have enough knowledge to fill the time that you have. So Erica, your podcasts are like over an hour long. So you have to like know a lot about the people or you have to you have to just have enough questions to fill your time where I'm interviewing somebody and usually I have like maybe eight minutes and it's mm-hmm. in four minute segments because at WYP at least when we do a live and direct session, which is where um, musicians come and perform in studio and there is a live music segment and then two interview segments. So sometimes you're just having like a four minute conversation. And when I say conversation, it's not really a conversation. It's like you asking a question, listening to what they say, maybe doing like a follow-up question about what they say, and then moving on to the next question because you don't have that much time, you know? So I think it's like so much more artful when it's short like that because you have to be... I mean, it's way easier to do like an hour of an interview because you're just like, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Right. And like try to keep it sort of contained. Whereas that situation, I think, is really difficult. I think that's really difficult. Way, 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 way harder. You have to, you have to, um, it's a lot of practice and restraint, you know, because I think a lot of times when I first started interviewing people, I'm like, oh, I just don't want them to like not like me. I just want them to think I'm so cool. It's not about you, mm-hmm. um, at least in my situation. It's different when you're hosting a podcast or it's different when you're like Stephen Colbert mm-hmm. um, and you're part 
of the show, you know? So like bringing your own stuff into a live radio interview. I mean, if Terry Gross started talking about herself in a fresh air interview, it would be really weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of journalistic in that way. Yeah. Rather than like a conversation. Yeah. It's not a conversation. It's It's an interview. It's an interview. Yeah. And I think that that when I was at school, we would ask like that same question, like what makes a really good interview? And it would be like, find out everything you can find out about them. Make sure it sounds conversational. It's like, that's the stupidest advice that I've ever heard in my life. Think about how much time you have. And if you have an hour, find out enough questions that you can, that, that, that you can talk to somebody for an hour and, you know, it, it depends on, on the tone of your interview. Like if, if this is your podcast, so you're going to inject yourself into the interview and it's appropriate and, and it's what people want. Um, did you, in college, did you do a major that was like really specifically preparing you for this field? You know, it's funny. It was audio radio was my major at Emerson College, which is not there anymore, but it was mostly like audio production. It was very huh. limited in radio experience. And any radio classes they offered were like electives that anybody, like film majors could, like senior filmmakers could get into radio programming before I could oh. as like a, a sophomore. Wow. I got a C in that class. <laughs> <laughs> I also wanted to ask you, um, in this other interview that I was referring to, you talked about the worst advice you ever received. Oh, yeah. Do you want me to read what you said or do you want to say it? Um, you can say it. I got a new job straight out of college producing at a station in Boston. When I told my new boss that my dream job would be to have my, radio, my own radio show where I could pick the music, he told me to come up with a more realistic dream. And look at me now. Ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, what a jerk that guy was. He, first jerk. of all, he asked me. Yeah. He was like, what is your dream job? And I told him. Wow, that's super jerky. Totally. Be like, what's your dream? Let me squash it. But I feel like my entire college spirit experience was filled with those moments mm-hmm. of like, you're never going to get a job. You won't amount to anything. This is a waste of money. Like, mm-hmm. you know, radio used to be great, but I think it was like in the in the years after that 1996 Telecommunications Act had passed and people were like freaking out about radio. They really thought this would be the end of radio. Yeah. So that guy saying to me, you should find a more realistic dream. He's not wrong. Because radio got super messed up, you know, and it, and DJs went, spoiler alert, <laughs> when you listen to most radio stations, even a lot of public radio stations, the DJs that you're listening to are not picking the music. Not so at WIP. Of all the juke joints <laughs> in all the juke joints towns I could wind up at. Uh-huh. WIP was like a miracle. I was able to get a wonderful position at a really cool radio station at such a young age. I was 25 when WIP hired me. Was luck, stroke of luck number one. Stroke of luck number two, the fact that the DJs get to program their own shows, they get to pick the music, was, it's like unheard of almost. Mm-hmm. 
And it's something that WIP, it's still, it's still a, a, a practice. Yeah. One of the things I like, too, about the way you go about it, not just in your song selections, which are super interesting, but, you know, as I mentioned before, you have a focus on local music, which is, like, so great. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, that's station-sanctioned and everything. So, yeah. But you're kind of in charge of those, yeah. those selections. And then... Um, and then also you have, are you still doing the hip hop? Um, the hip hop spot. The hip hop spot. Yeah. So that's another way in which like you're bringing attention to content that is in some cases looked over. And that's like you're yeah. using your position. You have a position of power basically. Because I, have a, you, I, have a, I have a platform. You have a platform and you can choose what goes on the platform. And yeah. like that means you have an authority, you have a power and like you use that in ways that are meaningful, mm. which I think Thank you. is really great. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That's awesome to hear. Cause I, well, I think that for hip hop, I want to give a lot of credit to my friend, Patrick Bowman, who is often on the hip hop spot, not every week, but like he is uh, he is a music writer, a music journalist, and he is like a scholar when it comes to all music, but in particular hip hop. So he impressed upon me in the last several years the importance of including this massively overlooked, at least in like, um, at least in like a triple A sense mm-hmm. and rock station sense, like this overlooked genre that totally. For the first time in the history of music sales has outsold and outperformed rock music, hip hop and R&B for the first time. Um, It's really an interesting genre to write it off is wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, I do not. I am not an expert by any means. And I want to be able to have that represented in a way on WIP, like even if it's just a small thing. Um, and Patrick has been instrumental in helping me. Um, but not only by being a guest, but as like a supporter and like we text each other every time I come across something hip hop related, mm-hmm. I text Patrick, I'm like, check this out. He's like, that's dope. <laughs> um, and I also want to thank Justin Strong, who is the general mm-hmm. manager at Spirit, who's a frequent guest and Selecta. Um, who hosts Grand Groove Radio on WIP. Those are those three guys are my kind of like go-tos mm-hmm. uh, on that segment. And I've like really been trying to reach out and get um, non-white, non-male people. So uh, yeah. Ty Clark, who's from One Hood Media, has appeared and shared some great songs, including Bodak Yellow from Cardi B, which is I, she, when she came on again a few months later, I'm like, Ty, I need to thank you for like introducing me to Bodak Yellow because like the week after it played on the hip hop spot, it like reached number one, like worldwide sensation success. So I was like, it it also like kind of helps me like this particular segment kind of helps me like stay kind of current and relevant to like what's Mm -hmm. happening in the rest of the world. You know, like I don't want to wake up one day and not know. Like who Beyonce is. Sure. Um, I think, too, like Pittsburgh's music scene does not, em- does not seem to me to emphasize the 
hip hop community. Like they seem like like when people talk about the Pittsburgh music scene, it's like yeah, who the hip hop community. Yeah, it's those just, are two different yeah. things. They don't. They, they don't, don't have to be though. They don't have to be, and I think it's really, uh, it's really um, helping to cross those uh, boundaries mm-hmm. when you include something like the hip hop spot. Yeah, and I've also been trying to make it a personal mission in the last year or so to seek out local hip-hop for the local 913 and have come across some pretty amazing people like Hollyhood also is a person who appears on the hip-hop spot. She's a local rapper and she's mm-hmm. such a great person. Um, Lucid Music, this duo, uh, this hip-hop duo that like plays some old, has old school stuff that, that sounds great. Mars Jackson, Chu Jackson, mm-hmm. uh, Kai Roberts. And there, the, the thing is, it's like, I really, I have, um, I have a hard time and help me. Like if anybody is listening to this and they're like, you're wrong. Like I have a hard time finding Pittsburgh hip hop sometimes that would appeal to, um, WIP listeners mm-hmm. like that, uh, like I've gotten some good feedback from the people that that I work with about like what would work in terms of hip hop. So like things that have like a melodic hook, either mm-hmm. in terms of like a singing hook or a sample, um, really works well for us. Uh, and and something that like real instruments is always a plus. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it's it's not like oh my god, it's so hard. I'm not going to try it anymore. But it's just sort of like a constant struggle. Of, sure. of wanting to be able to have that represented on the station and then also have it live alongside you, you two and Cheryl Crow. Oh yeah, <laughs> totally. I mean, you know? like those are, it's a really, that's an interesting picture you just painted with those yeah. selections. Um, <laughs> but of course you have to appeal in some way to your listener base. Um, uh, and it, I think the trick is really finding the things that are on the boundary and then, and like over time, the boundary shifts. Sure. And you yeah. follow that boundary as it shifts, and then it becomes more mixed across everything. Yeah. And I think maybe that's the ultimate. That's the goal. Goal. Right. Yeah. Shift the paradigm. Shift mm. the paradigm from the inside. <laughs> the call is coming from the inside. How did you develop your radio voice? When I first started radio, I had a wicked, uh, thick Boston accent, and I was like, no. so. Friggin' like it was, I was like pretty <laughs> hardcore, like Boston accent. So like I would like talk like this on like my high school radio station, but like I also would like kind of like talk like this because my voice was like kind of higher. So like I would, <laughs> I would be like talking like way up high here, and uh, and then I went to college, and people were like, why do you say wicked all the time? And so I was like, all right, I guess I can't say wicked all the time, but. Uh, I'm still kind of like talking in this voice that's like a little more up in my head. Mm-hmm. And then I came to WIP and I had some voice coaching sessions and I learned about projection and it was like I was shouting. So I've developed my radio voice by constantly listening to myself and my tapes and my talking breaks over and over again in interviews where I've had to like interview somebody over the phone and produce it later. I've heard myself talking a lot in college. I would record my shows on a CD 
the music and the breaks and like listen to them while I was riding the subway because I like to listen to the music, but also was listening to my breaks. So that really helped me. Hmm. But the number one thing is projection. You right. Know? So the vocal coaching that you had, was that um, YEP prescribed this for you? Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. You're like, girl, you need to go get a coach. Or is that just standard? They found one for me because I asked. Oh, okay. Yeah. Great. And projection was your biggest lesson that you learned. That's about like using your diaphragm and the airflow and everything yeah. like that. Yeah. And breathing too. Breathing. Is because I think people forget to breathe. Definitely. And get nervous and they keep talking and keep talking higher. Sometimes I try to work out where I'm going to breathe when I'm going to read that little bio thing because I get in trouble if I run out of breath. Right. Then I can't say it naturally anymore. Yes. And it doesn't sound natural at all. Like my bio section, I definitely, I know, I'm aware now even that it sounds different than when I'm just talking to you right now. And right. part of that is because I don't breathe where I would if I had just been speaking that off the cuff. You read music. A little bit. So what I remember from in high school when I read music, places where they would suggest you take a breath, they would put like a, com a comma mm -hmm. on the music oh, line. Yeah. So you could do that. Yeah, definitely. Yep. An apostrophe. An apostrophe. apostrophe. I guess it's there. not a comma. It's it's a <laughs> comma in the air. <laughs> Otherwise known as. An apostrophe. An apostrophe. Is that something you think about too? Or did you just, you just breathe on a regular basis? I mean, you just make sure you keep track of doing it or do you plan plan yourself i think now it's like so second nature that mm -hmm. i don't think about it but one thing that i do remember from my voice coaching is that if i'm reading a script that i haven't read before which is a no-no mm -hmm. um i should read it slowly mm. and purposefully and if there are pronunciations that are crazy to try and take it slow, 100% guaranteed I will get them wrong, <laughs> but still take them slow. So do you, do you practice the, if you have a scripted thing that you're going to have to read? Does somebody else write the stuff for you sometimes? The, so at WIP, we will read underwriting scripts. Mm -hmm. Those are written by someone else right. and I should be practicing them ahead of time. <laughs> So, so sometimes you do, and or maybe you always do. I don't know. Um, who knows? And who knows? <laughs> who knows? And then you do a few takes. Yep. When you're gonna, when you're gonna, and if it's something that plays all the time, right? Like if it, I'm, if like, I'm reading something and it just derails, I will just. If it's live, that's one thing. You're like, well, that's life. But if it's not live, then you have the opportunity to mm -hmm. do it again. When you're setting your voicemail message for your voicemail inbox, how many times do you, on average, re-record? Hi, you've reached Cindy Howes, and oh shit, you know. <laughs> Let me start again. I Are used you? to have a really good voicemail message that was like, "Hi, you've reached Cindy. You're leaving a message," and everybody loved it. But then I like something weird happened in my life, and I was like, "I don't want to be funny anymore, so I'm just gonna have a <laughs> straightforward message." Are you ready to go back to funny Cindy yet? I haven't changed my voicemail message. Like my voicemail message is like pretty straightforward. Like if I get like a professional phone call, I don't want like a funny voicemail. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that yeah. is kind of a despondent sort of thing you just yeah. said. And if it's like Tori Amos calling for that follow up. Right. 
Yeah, like Tori would want to be like, oh, she just sounds unfriendly. Yeah. <laughs> she sounds mean. She sounds like she doesn't care about doesn't anything. Care about anybody and doesn't drink anything. enough water. <laughs> Is drinking water a big tip too? Oh yeah. Let's talk about the interviews that that um, you actually brought today. Yeah. So we already, you know, touched a little bit about on what you think makes a good interview and different aspects of of interviewing as a process. Um, how much do you think about the story arc in the middle and the midst of, of the interview, or do you do it all in the preparation? I think about it. It's, so it's usually the project that I'm focused on of that particular artist, like an album. Mm-hmm. Um, so usually the interview at WIEP for our live and direct sessions is broken up into two segments. And so the first segment I will focus on the arc of the project and it's, it's interesting. It's like if it, if the person is is more like focused on talking about their songwriting, I'll try and focus on like different methods and different processes. Like, did you go to a certain location or something like that? But if they're more interested sonically in how their album sounds, I'll try to focus more on that. Like, did you have a special producer? Are you aiming for a specific sound? Did something inspire you to go after that sound? And then the second part of the interview, I'll usually try to ask more general like bio questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, this is not true if it's an artist that is new to WIP. Um, and in that particular instance, I'll do sort of like the bio intro questions in the first part. And then in the second part, do more of a focus on the See, project. It it's kind of inverted. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of like a specialized answer mm-hmm. for like what we do at WIEP. Um, but if there's and then there's like two there's like songs in the middle of these. But if I'm just interviewing somebody on the phone, that's usually what the arc is like. If I interview like Bethany from Best Coast, I don't need to like set up her, yeah, uh, her story. Like we basically get it. And so you you do most of these on the phone. I do most interviews in person now, but I've done lots of phone interviews and Skype and FaceTime interviews mm-hmm. and ISDN, which is like a phone line, like a crystal clear phone line. A crystal clear, crystal phone clear line. phone wow. like Pepsi, Chris, Pepsi. <laughs> Crystal Pepsi. <laughs> Crystal Pepsi phone line. Yeah. Wow. Yep. I uh, I don't know about these things. These are good to know. So so just get an ISDN line in here. And we're all going to can interview anybody. Any, anybody you want. Tori anybody Amos. Anywhere, anywhere. How much does one cost? Just, like 20,000. 20,000? I don't know. I'm going to write a grant. Yeah, write a grant. Write a grant. Yep. Uh, just for this. <laughs> um, so... So we are going to listen to a few different interviews um, today. Uh, the first one we're going to listen to is Denora. Yeah, Casey. Casey, um, who has been here. So listeners will remember her interview here. This will be a shorter, more artful snippet of an interview. And um, so is this going to be the more of the project end of the interview that you're going to play? This, this is of? so this was in the second half. And another thing I'll mention about interviewing at WIP for a live and direct session is that I usually try to ask the more fun questions or mm-hmm. the more like important questions in the second half after people are kind of warmed up yeah. to talking to me, um, which does like it takes a little bit, you know, sure. to, to get comfortable and stuff. So this was in the second part 
of the interview. And I don't know if I actually planned on asking this question, but because Denora played a particular song that I remembered hearing on my favorite television program called Grey's Anatomy, I like was like, I need to ask her about this, but I don't know what she's going to say. So I'm just going to ask her the question and she's going to say what she says. Uh-huh. That's great. Okay, let's listen to it. 91.3 WYEP live and direct with Denora, the new album Sun to Me, performing December 1st at Spirit. Does anybody watch Grey's Anatomy? <laughs> yeah? You hear that song on Grey's Anatomy? That song was on Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> it it's a TV show about doctors. <laughs> um, it is basically the Taj Mahal of song placements, at least in my <laughs> eyes. But um, that was pretty recent that that song was on Grey's Anatomy. Yeah, just um, a couple weeks ago. So... Without getting too graphic, uh, tell us about that song placement. <laughs> okay, so, you know, we have a licensing agent, and, you know, she contacted us and said, like, hey, you know, Grey's Anatomy wants to use one of her song, our songs from the new album. And we're like, that's awesome. And they give you a little scene description, and it says, you know, the two doctors are performing surgery, and the people are talking about, you know, different items that they've removed from bodies. And that seemed innocent enough. I'm thinking, like, you know, kid puts, like, a marble up his nose, right? And you have to... So I'm thinking, like, very innocent. No. <laughs> and I wasn't able to watch the show, but I started getting text messages, like, hey, your song is playing in Grey's Anatomy during a scene where uh, a doctor is removing a gun from a woman's vagina. Who? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, excuse me? <laughs> Like, how is that even, why is that even a plot line? <laughs> you would have to watch the show. Yeah, right. Um, so it wasn't as bad as it sounds, I guess. <laughs> um, but I think had the placement come in with that scene description, I would have been like, mm, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know where we go from here. <laughs> I don't know. I'm really unsure. <laughs> <laughs> now, where did you go from there? I think we, I just like quickly changed the subject. <laughs> Next thing. Yeah. And that's, yeah, because it's not like you're tying all the, that, that's the thing about an interview. It's like you don't have to tie every question together. Right. Like, I'm like, I don't know where we go from here. And Casey's like, yeah, I don't know either. And I was like, so Jake, I wanted to ask a question about the drums on the album or like something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's just like a non sequitur, but. It doesn't matter. And you know where to go in that sense because you have been preparing everything. Right. You know, you have a bunch of things that you could. And there's only, a, there's only a limited amount of time. Mm -hmm. So you're like, got to go. Yeah. Yeah. So that was um, a live and direct session and there was applause in the background. So this is like people are there also. Yeah. So you're like she said vagina. Them. It's a, <laughs> vagina, vagina. <laughs> and um, so does that add any pressure to you? Do you feel like more pressure when you're in the like people are there watching in addition yeah. to the interview? -y? Yeah, it's something that you have to get used to. And I've been doing it for 10 years and it was an added stress at first and it's, it's, uh, I, I have a lot of anxiety, um, and it didn't help <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to feel like you had to like put a show on 
in front of like actual people instead of invisible people. Right. Um, but I think that it has definitely affected my interview style in a way that's more like entertaining. So yeah, it's, you're very funny, actually. You have like the good pacing and everything, and then you're like, oh, you'd have to watch the show. You know, it's like a little joke in there, and it's. I think that was really funny. I've turned into Jack Benny. Who's Jack Benny? He's a radio guy. Oh, okay. And the TV guy in the in the golden age of radio, oh, and I'm, I'm a hundred. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of our guests have classic traditional interests, actually, <laughs> as it turns out. Um, do you feel more comfortable when, I mean, I mean, I, you guys, you just, you just said this, that you feel more comfortable when you can't see the listener. Yeah. That makes you feel totally. more comfortable than yeah. if you can. Mm -hmm. I find that interesting. Yeah. Well, okay. So when I was like way more people are listening to you. Totally. But when I was in high school, I did like... My, maybe my first radio broadcast and I came home after school and my brother was like, hey, listen to your radio show. And I was like, oh, yeah, thanks. And he's like, you sounded really nervous. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was really nervous. He was like, no one's listening. And I was like, oh, all right. So that's like my advice to anybody that comes in. Uh -huh. It's no like it's a joke. Like, well, like he, he meant it because our high school radio station yeah. was 10 watts. Yeah. You could get it at the, at the McDonald's and that was it. Yeah. Um, but like, that's like a funny joke. If somebody comes in for like a, a musician comes in that hasn't had a lot of experience with interviews and they're nervous. And mm -hmm. I tell them that story, like, don't worry, no one's listening. It's like a joke, but yeah. it puts them at ease. Then it's like dance like no one's dance watching. Like no one's watching. <laughs> so the next one we're going to listen to is KT Tunstall. Yes. And she is a very easy person to interview because you will ask her like, hi, how are you? And then she will talk for 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so That's great. I actually, so you can ask her yes or no questions because she'll keep talking. Totally. Yeah. And you can just be like, it's a beautiful day, isn't it? Yes, it's a beautiful day to release an album full of <laughs> a concept album I recorded in Arizona. That's not how she talks. But <laughs> that was a good um, attempt. A good attempt. Yeah. But I was able to find a short segment where she talked about something pretty cool mm -hmm. that I uh, was I picked up on her like imagery you know and it, and it's interesting listening to this interview I did this interview a couple of years ago and I've gone through like a pretty significant life change recently where like you become you know you go from like the first part of your life into the second part of your life you know oh, yeah. and you 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 sort of transitions and in, into like a higher level and everything starts to change so it's interesting that she's kind of talking about when that happened to her and i go back and listen to that now after i've had this shift and feel like oh my god i get it i get what she's saying now yeah that's interesting because you're also kind of revealing you didn't totally get it at that time. Right. But you still were capable of doing this interview. Of course, yeah. um, Because you're an intelligent, cognitive person. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Wicked smart. But it's, it's like, different, and really it adds a, a layer of depth that, like, even your own work can show you something yeah. in the future uh, to a future you, mm -hmm. which is awesome. Um, so is this taking place in the same context? Yes. A live and direct session? So mm -hmm. you've got an audience. How big is the audience at one of these? It's usually, like... Anywhere between 20 and 40 people. Okay. So it's small, but like, I mean, it's like this. It's not of, like five people. <laughs> it's not like five people, but it's it's also not like 300. Because if it gets over a certain amount, you're like, it's almost like no one's there. It's kind of harder, though, if it's just like 20 people and you yeah. have, and you know them all. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> From coming to previous live and direct sessions. Right. Totally. Um, okay. So let's listen to your question for KT. So something that I've noticed between um, Invisible Empire, Crescent Moon, and Golden State, and then maybe on KTLP5, we'll see uh, something that sort of comes out in the imagery, and that is uh, the imagery of a warrior. Um, I'm interested to know what has led you to the warrior, and am I correct that this persona Man, has remained? it's lovely, lovely that you'd say that, Cindy. It's really how it feels, and uh, uh, you're making me feel really cool right now. <laughs> uh, you are really cool. Um, I mean, at the, I think at the root of all talk of warriors and strength and triumph is really the ability to love yourself. It might sound cheesy and cliche, but it really feels very, very true for me. It's been a few years of a lot of self-reflection and a lot of self-discovery. And I really like myself in a way that I didn't before. And I like going to the movies on my own. And I like going to gigs. I like going, to, going on dates with myself. And before, before this period of change, I would always want to be with other people. I would always want distraction. And um, it's just not so anymore. And I think there's, there's this, that huge strength of being more comfortable in yourself. Um, and that's really what's happened. And I've realized as well through going through that process myself is that it's a really, really important message, particularly for young people, particularly for young women. Um, and anyone who's, feel, any, anyone who's feeling disturbed or, or put upon by the world or doesn't feel good enough. And it feels, this record is definitely um, about, it's really about the fact that it takes about 30 years and lots of, really hard stuff in your life to find out who your people are. <laughs> it's like we used to be born into the tribe, right? You used to be born into this small community of people and you lived in your hut and you knew everyone and you looked after one. And now it's like the universe is kind of playing tricks on us that we just all get born in the wrong place with the wrong people around us and we have to kind of find out who are the people who really see the world the same way as we do despite these things happening to us. And so the record is very much about like the verses are hey, this is the really hard stuff that happened to me, and here's the chorus, and we can dance about it, because we're survived. <laughs> That's, uh, she has a really beautiful message that yeah. she talks about in there. Yeah. That's really incredible. And um, where did that question come from when you picked that question? It's hard to say. I think I really loved her album, Invisible Empire, Crescent Moon. And when you're sitting there preparing for an album, I like listen to the music. I read a bunch of interviews. I read a bunch of like bio information, look at pictures and just kind of wait for questions to formulate. And that one just kind of popped up as a curiosity of something that was like cohesive imagery on two pretty close together projects. So, and, and it's, and it's like, also she's like hot, you know, she's yeah. like, <laughs> like looks incredible. And I wanted to know what her association was with that particular image and if it was something if it was something that crossed over also your question really unlocked a really special answer mm. which is yeah. really cool and uh, maybe not even the one you were expecting i guess definitely not yeah. the one you were expecting yeah sometimes I, another piece of advice that um i've been given for interviews which i don't think is that good is like just ask questions that you already know the answers to Oh, no. And that seems that seems like a very, and I would say maybe for like a beginner interview, for sure. But like, 
that I, I think that leads to like kind of a boring question. If you're coming to an environment like a public radio station where we like to challenge our listeners, then we're going to ask you questions that are kind of out of the ordinary or at least branch off of answers that you've given in the past that right. are kind of stemming off of that. I find the her observation about, you know, going through 30 years of life and like serious setbacks and things like that mm. to find this next level is a very poignant experience and yeah. I think very relatable for me in my 30s having gone through a bunch of shit. Yep. And getting to the, some new place. I feel like I'm always in a transition to the next thing. I think there's more transitions coming, yeah. which maybe means there's more good KT records to come out so. with association with these levels, which is great. The next one we're going to listen to is mm -hmm. Lone Bellow. There are three people in this band. Um, Zach Williams is the guy who is talking, and this is actually one of my favorite interviews I've ever done. These guys, they all seem to really love each other and take joy from each other. Uh, and I, I mean, even if they're in an interview together, they've been on tour for like three months straight. They're exhausted. They like don't know where they are. Mm -hmm. They they're just such joyful people to be around. Whether they're you're talking to them, or they're performing music, like you can just feel love and joy come out of them. And one of the things that I really love about this band is their ability to storytell. Mm -hmm. And in particular, Zach, I, listening to him tell stories is captivating so I my question was about what I love about them the most aside from their music let's take a listen we're live and direct with the lone bellow on 91.3 WYEP performing tonight at the Rex latest album then came the morning uh, Zach are you busy are you tuning okay okay <laughs> I wanted to ask you, I think you're such a great storyteller. I've heard you tell stories on stage in interviews just now telling us a story about fake roses, um, whether it's within a song or you're just, you know, telling a story on stage. Uh, I'm interested to know who taught you how to tell a story and, you know, what do you think makes a good story? Brevity is the soul of wit. <laughs> That's number one, I think. Um... I mean, you you know when you're losing people's attention. So that'll that if if you know when you can lose people's attention. My my grandfather is a great storyteller. Uh, he always like fixes his hair while he's talking to you. <laughs> if he feels like he's losing your attention, he'll start talking more and more quiet <laughs> until he draws you back in. And then um, and then my yeah my uncles my father, they, I mean my family is well known. We you know. We stretch the truth to get a good story. <laughs> Family lore has gotten crazier and crazier, which last time I was here, like reality and family lore collided where my great-grandfather um, helped build the Cathedral of Learning and one of his friends fell off and he grabbed him and, and fell off with him. That's how he died. And I told the story because we were playing right in front of the Cathedral of Learning and somebody in the audience worked at the city archives and they sent me the actual like right up and I even mentioned my grandma like 12 year old Lois McCloskey from Wilkinsburg you know this whole thing I was just like whoa it's real <laughs> it really happened <laughs> uh -oh. 
That's an awesome story. I know. It really is. Did you know that that was a story that he had to tell? That was the third time I told, I've heard him tell that story. Uh huh. But it's like kind of different. You learn a little bit more every time. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's storytelling. Talking about storytelling and interviewing together is interesting because you're the interviewer, but the interviewee is the one telling the story. But you're also controlling the story. Yeah. Like you're the, you're the storyteller, mm-hmm. but you're not. I'm like the guide. Mm-hmm. You're like the guide. For the storyteller. Yeah, you're you're yeah. Like, like shaping. You're shaping mm-hmm. what the storyteller can tell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, then that's a really good way to put it in terms of like it's not a conversation. You're guiding the story. Mm-hmm. I also like his his advice about storytelling. Brevity is the soul of wit. Yes, which is something Get that tattooed on you. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's what that's why I keep saying it's the artful version of of things. You know, it's like to to find ways to convey convey this information that's clever but short, mm-hmm. small, digestible. Yeah. People have short, shorter and shorter attention spans. Yes. For reals. Actually, I like this so much, I would like to listen to another one. I wanted to play the Tegan and Sarah one because it's an example of um, asking a really short question and getting a really long answer. Mm. So the question that I was asking them, they took it. As, so Sarah is the one that launches off mm-hmm. into... Uh, into space here with with the answer so they on their latest record they have no guitars on it and for as long as they've existed for 17 years they've been known as like girls with guitars you know it's kind of like yeah. the, the their image but they've been losing the guitars recently and there's been like a lot of talk online about like you know what the hell, like, we want the guitars or like, we like this. So just like a lot of discussion. Mm -hmm. So the way that I set it up was just like very short, like, you know, I mean, we'll hear, but it's, it's, it, this is like a great example of a question where you completely take yourself out of the, of the setup and you just let them talk about whatever they're going to talk about Mm -hmm. with this, because I, I kind of like set it up in a in a way for them, um, but I think the results are really cool. Hopefully, you uh, let me know if you know what I mean after we listen yeah, to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, it's early in the interview, but let's talk about a little bit of a controversial topic. <laughs> I love it. Um, no guitars. Wh- which what's that? No, no guitars. Oh, no guitars. Yeah. Oh, well, there's some. There's there, some. There are guitars on there. I think we like to just explain it like the, the guitars used to sort of be the driving sound of the music, and now they're sort of more of a texture. And there are guitars on our last two records. We just sort of, um, we didn't necessarily see the um, the point in just continuing to make music, um, you know, that we weren't even really listening to anymore. You know, when we started out 20 years ago, even earlier than that, I mean, we started writing songs in 1995. I mean, the music we were listening to had a lot of guitars. And as we've gotten older and our musical tastes have changed and developed, uh, a lot of the production and the and the musical ingredients that we're drawn to, both lis- as listeners and as writers, um, have have just changed and morphed. And so it's funny. I think people they love to uh, they love to be convinced, you know. And I think in the beginning, when you change something, people want to challenge whether or not they're going to like it. And I think sometimes, you know, we're already well ahead of 
you know, people, once they hear the music, we've been living with it for a period of time, recording it, obsessing over it. So we understand sometimes that when the audience hears something different, they just, they just need time to kind of um, get used to it. I also want to add that <laughs> guitar was sort of the instrument we used to write songs. I'm actually a really bad guitar player. And people on stage with us will be polite and not agree with me, but I play guitar on, f I think, five songs in the set, and I almost screw up every single night, at least two of those songs. It's, it's hard to sing and emote and be in charge and command an audience and like keep in time and play to click track. And like we hire incredible musicians to play with us. And as the years have gone by 17 to be exact, I've just started to accept that I use the piano and guitar to write songs. That's my instrument to write. But then once I'm on stage, I become the instrument and taking away the guitar has made us better singers. And also I think maybe a better performers on stage. So I think the focus around like the guitar sound, it's super cool. Like Sarah said, it's a really fun thing to sort of like explore with our audience, but I think people should be glad we put the guitars down a little bit. <laughs> They're heavy too. They're super heavy. Our posture is way better now. Like four years, I'm like really, like not even just like be like this all the time. I had like this giant <laughs> grapefruit on my shoulder. <laughs> That's really interesting. And I, I like your setup for this too. I mean, the setup for the setup, uh, like your, your question was literally just, two words no guitars no guitars <laughs> no guitars no guitars that's it you know and and it really did spawn all of this you know interesting stuff yeah that they those talked about those two are people you can ask yes or no questions mm. and they will blah blah keep blah, blah, going blah. yeah yeah yep yeah i think maybe you also are someone <laughs> i can ask a yes or no question to and you'll you'll expand upon that. I definitely am. I wish I was a, just a yes or no person, but well, I Well, if you're go. being recorded in an interview, <laughs> I know what you're looking for. Right. Yeah, you perform at my expectations. Yes. Thank you. I try to exceed. <sighs> um, one of the things that I like across all your interviews is that you're, um, you're an easy to talk to interviewer. Mm -hmm. And all of your guests feel free to bring in elements of humor. Mm -hmm. And you also bring that in. I love a too. callback. Yeah. You know, the comedy term, yeah. like a callback. Yeah, 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 yeah. What specifically does that mean? So like I was interviewing Oh Wonder and I can't remember the question I asked them, but it was about like, they're really popular, like with young kids. And we were talking about doing like a certain style of interview and how that's difficult and how, you know, people want to know like silly things about you. Like, what did you have for breakfast? And like, what's your favorite color and what, what kind of car, what's your dream car and blah, blah, blah. And then like at the end, like she, Josephine answered my question. And at the end of it, I was like, so what did you have for breakfast? <laughs> yeah. And she said porridge because she's British. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you feel like you're in your final resting spot? Would you want to be a, you know, late night with Cindy Hills on the TV, for example? <laughs> um, well, as a woman, that's probably out of the question. <laughs> Says that jerk <laughs> from back in the day. Oh, man. Uh, things that men have said to me about... <laughs> professional life. Um, anything else you want to share about that? Yeah. So one time I was in college and this guy who is a very, very famous program director at our heritage rock station, our version of DVE, mm -hmm. um, 
he came in to talk to one of my radio classes. It was like a Q&A. And I asked him, I, it was my turn, and I asked him, do you think that female artists have um, started to create music that's more geared towards AAA as opposed to alternative rock radio because alternative rock radio doesn't play women on the radio anymore? And he blamed um, Lilith Fair <laughs> for the re- as the reason that women are not played on the radio. What? How is that? Why would Lilith Fair be a reason? That- it was so the, it was so long ago that it's hard for me to remember the exact wording of his response. But basically, it seemed as though Lilith Fair made women lame and that Hmm. alternative rock radio didn't want to play lame women Hmm. on the radio when the real answer is the telecommunications act of 1996 Hmm. which took all sorts of marginalized groups off the radio artistic white men women and people of color Mm -hmm. yeah that's... So what were you listening to in the late 90s? You were listening to Red Hot Chili Peppers and Godsmack. Evanescence is the answer of the women that you were hearing on alternative rock radio in the late 90s. I also really love your question that you asked him as well. I think that is an, a provoking thought. Yeah. That... He just wasn't ready for it. Yeah. No, clearly he. I don't. Maybe he didn't have time to process the whole weight of that He was like, question. obviously the answer is a little fair because women are terrible. <laughs> Now, actually, WIP does seem to be very forward-thinking about women. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, Rosemary Welsh is a big part of that, I think. She's the best. She's the queen. Yeah. She's done a lot for women in radio. Yes. Uh, she she first started working at WIP when she was in her early 20s. She had um, a women in music radio show. That is how she... She first moved to Pittsburgh, and that was like her way of acclimating herself to the city was through this radio show. Mm-hmm. And it carried on, I believe, into the, into the 80s. And then in, in the 90s, things shifted, and she was the first hired staff person at WIP. And she is still oh. working there. Wow. And we should thank our lucky stars that Rosemary Welsh is in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's done so much for... For the community and for yeah. and for women, yeah. it's really awesome. The, the city and the radio station would not be the same without her. Going back to the beginning, where I said you're kind of like a public figure, right? Yeah. Um, do people I'm a local minor celebrity? A local a minor celebrity, but a local major celebrity. Local major is like minor. I don't know. Well, whatever. People know who you are. Yeah. Do people recognize you when you're out? Do you get good? Good. Uh, do you get better table reservations? Does anything like that happen to you? Uh, or are you like kind of flying under the radar because you're a radio person? Yeah. So think, people don't know what you look like. Yeah, it's mostly flying under the radar. Sometimes you sign your checks and they're like, oh, it's Cindy House. <laughs> well, um, I got some glasses recently and the lady that was helping me with my glasses um, she was like, I don't want to be a weirdo. <laughs> I know who you are. <laughs> and I was like, she was really cool. So I was like, yeah. oh, hey, that's cool. 
Yeah. It doesn't uh, disturb you in any way. No, especially if it's like uh, no offense to men, but like if it's a woman, uh-huh. 100% okay with it. And then men, it's like 70% yeah. usually. <laughs> 70% of the time it's usually okay. Or sometimes guys are kind of skeezy. Yeah, it's a, just a, that's yeah. a, just a general man thing. Yeah, like it guys, <laughs> I used to do the morning mix and men who would come up to me and be like, I shower with you every morning. And, like, <laughs> uh, and, yeah, then, right. and then they would be like, I wake up with you every morning. And I'm like, okay. So just in closing then, I was wondering, so you had this question that you had answered before, if I could tour with any two bands, they would be. And you have an answer from the past. And I think it's kind of funny because it's Band of Horses or a Band of Bees. <laughs> and then you said, I like the animal-themed bands, which harkens also to your uh, upbringing with rabbits and um, <laughs> sheep, sheep clubs. <laughs> yeah. Uh, animal bands. What is your – that was in 2007. That was a long time ago, huh? That was a long time ago. Yeah. And so many – other musical acts have come into your life and yeah. you've, you, you know, like, I don't know, like who, what would be your answer to this today? Haim and uh, Josh Ritter, because I'm friends with his band and it would be fun to hang out with those guys. Mm. They're good guys. How long of a tour would you go out for? A weekend. Yeah. <laughs> you want to go for like three months and just like do the whole yeah I think it would be fun for a weekend yeah, yeah that's about as long yeah. as it is fun I think probably in real yeah. life thank you so much for coming Thanks. onto the show thank um, you this is really fun and educational yeah I hope that it wasn't too educational that's what I say at the end of every podcast I do I hope that it wasn't terrible <laughs> no I had a lot of fun thank you so much thank you this yeah. is awesome yeah. I had a great time yeah You've been listening to Petticoat Rule, galvanizing women in musical creativity. The views and opinions expressed during the show are solely those of the persons appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the producers. Subscribe and find more information and episodes at petticoatrule.net. Follow us on Facebook at Petticoat Rule and on Instagram and Twitter at Petticoat Rule FM. 